Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Hello! From the Next Reels Film Board, this is Tommy Hansom with an important announcement. The following podcast includes movie audio clips that contain unbleeped profanity. Such profanity may include Damn, Hell, Nuts, Butterf, <coughs> McGee, Doodle, <coughs> Captain Fuck, <coughs> and Toot Toot, here comes the diarrhea parade. Listening discretion is advised. 
Welcome to Silver Linings, part of the next real family of film podcasts on True Story FM. Have you ever liked or even loved a movie that everyone else just seems to hate? Well, you are not alone, my friend. We look at movies that are often panned by critics and audiences to see if their hate is warranted. Sure, we'll talk about what might be broken, but more important, we talk about what really works in these films with the hope that we change some minds along the way. Perhaps even yours? So, sit back, relax, and let's take the guilt out of guilty pleasures. This is Silver Linings. Hello, I'm Ray, your eternal optimist. And I'm Ocean. For this episode of Silver Linings, we'll be taking a look at 2001's Swordfish. Who is he? He exists in a world beyond your world. What we only fantasize, he does. He lives a life where nothing is beyond him. He takes what he wants, when he wants. So how do I find him? You don't find him. He finds you. Good job. Senator, we have a problem. Did you know that I can buy nuclear warheads for 40 million each? Hell, I buy half a dozen and get a discount. What do you think is going to happen if he starts tying up loose ends? My employer wants to meet you. He'll pay you just to meet you, Stan. Ever heard of Operation Swordfish? Nope. It's a sweet deal. Nine and a half billion. Do you have any idea of how much money that is? We go in over the phone lines, pop the firewall, sit back, wait for the money. So what we need from you, Stanley, is a worm. Marco, let's give him some incentive. Hey, what are you doing? I have been told that the best crackers in the world can do this in 60 minutes. Unfortunately, I need someone who can do it in 60 seconds. You're kidding. Go! 45 seconds. You're gonna get these people killed! 20. Who are you? I'm not what you think I am. More time, more time. Come on, stand. 15. I think that you think I'm a bankrupt. Truth is that I'm worse. Control, be advised that this is now an aerial pursuit. Hold on. Three, two, one. Too bad, you gotta die. No, 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 wait, wait. Not everything ends the way you think it should. John Travolta, Hugh Jackson, Halle Berry, and Don Cheadle. Swordfish. So I guess we should start off by talking about how we were personally introduced to the film. So I'll, I'll go first since I'm uh, super excited about this movie. I saw this movie in theaters. And um, when I saw this uh, preview, I was instantly hooked. I said, hey, we have a, th- a preview of Wolverine as a computer hacker. And I'm in. <laughs> uh, so I saw it in theaters. I loved it uh, immediately. I purchased the movie as, as the day it was available on DVD. I, I thought it was a really uh, fun ride at the time and really enjoyed it. And actually, it in it inspired me for at least a week of thinking about becoming an international computer hacker. <laughs> How did that pan out for you? Well, I, I turned out I did not become an international computer hacker. I do work with computers. I'm a computer programmer, but I don't hack into systems illegally. Although, honestly, seeing this movie made me want to start. <laughs> I, can, I get that. I just hope the job interview wouldn't be quite the same. 
Uh, no, I want that same interview. That's, that's <laughs> the one I want. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the job interview I'm going for. So, so how, how were you introduced to the film? Well, there's this guy named Ocean Murph who uh, hosts Silver <laughs> Linings, and he told me that we should watch this movie. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so I did actually just watch it for the first time for this show, but it wound up on my radar not very long after it came out because there was a friend of mine in high school who really loved this movie and he would keep saying, dude, you got to watch Swordfish. You got to watch Swordfish. But for whatever reason, I always put it off. So here we are. But, yes, here we you are. know, I watched it on HBO Max and I got to say it was a lot better than I expected. Well, that is great. And that fits dovetails well into the theme of the show. We should uh, recap for a quick second that uh, Swordfish is uh, this movie came out in 2001, stars Hugh Jackman, uh, John Travolta, Holly Berry, and Don Cheadle. It was uh, directed by Dominic Cena. Uh, is a director. He's known primarily at the time for making music videos, and really in his big movie credits are uh, 1993's California. California is spelled mm. with a K. Uh, it's a movie that starred uh, Brad Pitt and Juliette Lewis. If you haven't seen it, it's interesting and weird. Um, and <laughs> Gone in 60 Seconds and Swordfish. Um, yeah, the budget of the movie was $102 million. It uh, grossed uh, $69.7 million domestically, international $77.3, with a total uh, box office gross of $147 million. So it, it did make money, but it was not... Uh, the most critically well-received movie. As a side note, I think it's interesting to point out that this movie, which has a fair amount to do with terrorism and counterterrorism, came out just months before the 9-11 tax in the U.S. So that's just uh, an interesting factoid to keep in the back of your mind as we discuss this film. Uh, yes. Yes, it is. it is. It is very interesting how it became in a sense, more timely than it initially was intended to be. You know the problem with Hollywood is? They make shit. So the, the critical consensus of this uh, movie, and I like to always start with the Rotten Tomatoes recap, is that uh, oh Swordfish is big on explosions, but critics dislike how it skimps on plot and logic. Also, the sight of a person typing at a computer just isn't that interesting. Being someone who spends several hours a day typing at a computer, I'm, I I disagree with that. Nope, that's <laughs> so, I'm, I find typing to be in, uh, re really enrapturing. Um, so there are some so the mixed bag of reviews. I suppose we can start with uh, one of the bad reviews that came from Roger Ebert. It's uh, his, his synopsis was it's uh, skillfully mounted and fitfully intriguing, but weaves such a tangled web that at the end, I defy anyone in the audience to explain the exact loyalties and motives of leading characters. Huh. Um, you know, another uh, not so uh, not so nice review is from the BBC, where Swordfish it says Swordfish is simply too inane to be anything more than a formulaic Hollywood blockbuster. Um, now, there were some reviews that were good. So from the Dallas Morning News, uh, there was one that says, has a great opening, an exciting finale, and in between it rarely bores and often entertains. Also another one from Real Reviews, Swordfish at least remembers that this sort of film is supposed to be fun. But putting a wet blanket on those reviews, Newsweek says it's a good thing the action is noisily distracting, because if you don't want any downtime, in which to ponder the plausibility or the sense of anything that is happening. And then uh, CNN was along the same lines where it says, don't look too closely. If you do, it becomes not just mindless, but ludicrous, preposterous, and downright stupid. Hmm. 
So that's that. That is a very much negative review. <laughs> a little harsh. To me, the basic criticism of the film is, is based on the expectations of a movie. The real genius of, of Swordfish is um, that it is a, it's a slick movie, um, and that it's fun to watch, and it, and it keeps you guessing the whole time, right? Mm. And that's, you know, that's kind of what it's giving you. Is it's, it's, a, it's being wrapped in a pretty package, but there's lots of complicated twists and turns along the way, and you kind of have to want to go with it as a ride, because it's, it's somewhere between... You know, you're Fast and Furious, which are just a nice, fun ride, and the plot doesn't matter, and you don't have to care about anything. And something that's trying to, you know, be more of a mystery whodunit and keep you guessing. So I think straddling that line for some people was a, a little bit confusing. That they want, if it's going to be a whodunit or a guessing about things, then they mm-hmm. want it to be more straightforward than the nice, beautiful packaging that this one had. Well, I think John Travolta's character Gabriel gave the audience fair warning whenever he talks about Harry Houdini and he keeps bringing up the concept of misdirection. So I think just the fact that he kept bringing that up makes you think, okay, well, I need to keep my eyes peeled just a little bit here. And it's foreshadowing. Right. After hearing you read Roger Ebert's review, I got to say, I disagree with what he said because after only having seen it once, I'm fairly certain that I could confidently tell you which characters, you know, where their loyalties lie and whatnot. I think that the movie, if you pay, if you pay attention, I think it's explained well enough. Well, I think we can dive a little bit into that and in that put the framework around some of these characters, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think overall the plot is smart enough to have points uh, that you don't know what will happen next, but it's not grounded in so much reality. Sure. You have to suspend some disbelief, right? Right. Um, and it, and that's a hard tightrope. But I, mean, I think some of the questions you had about different characters, so I'll just start with, let's start with John Travolta as Gabriel Shear. Okay. Right? In the movie, you could ask, you know, when you start saying, okay, how would I define what that character is? So is he a patriot protecting us from bad guys? Is he a bad guy? Is he a double agent pretending to be either a patriot or a bad guy? Is he a freelance mercenary? Is he Ginger's lover? Or is he Ginger's target? Right? You know, there are various parts in the movie where all those questions can be asked. And at the end of the movie, you may come out of it, you know, thinking almost any one of those, Mm -hmm. you know, as far as what his character is. And I can see how that can be... You know, it's a little bit confusing or different for people in that this uh, popcorn action movie isn't supposed to make me think about things like this, mm. right? You know, right. and think about the characters. And so I think that that's, you know, to me, that's a lot of where the criticism comes in. And you can run down some of the other characters, and I am ready to, when we get to them, about that you have the same thing where you have multiple possibilities of what their motivations are and who they are in the movie. Yeah. And you know what? I think you hit the nail right on the head in calling it a popcorn movie, because that's exactly what I was thinking as I was watching it. This is terrific entertainment. And a lot of the criticisms seem to be from people who are really thinking just a little bit too much about this movie. And not every movie is meant to be examined with a microscope. Exactly. Some of it is just pure entertainment. And exactly, just take it at face value. Let's talk about different parts of the movie. Okay. What, what we actually thought was good about the movie. How can you justify all this? Right. So I think the first thing to talk about, obviously, is that opening sequence. Yes. 
Right. The opening sequence really kind of has greatness in two parts. And so, uh, and I think both parts really do warrant some discussion, right? The first opening sequence, right? When Gabriel's, uh, Gabriel's speech about movies and the fact that the bad guys in movies will not go all the way to achieve their goals mm-hmm. is a critique I often share about movies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the way the, that scene was shot, where you start in on the tight pan of John Travolta's face and he's talking to, it really, it feels like you. Right. right. He really looks like he's talking to the audience and saying, hey, here's a problem with modern movies. Right. You know, and that, uh, you know, and as it continues on, his critique of modern movies seems to make a lot of sense. Like, you know, the bad guys don't go far enough. This is why they lose. And, you know, and that they should do more. Right. He, is, he uses Dog Day Afternoon as an example of how they could have gotten away with the crime in Dog Day Afternoon. And then as you pan out and you realize that he is now talking, not only talking to other characters, which you get a little bit of that midway through, but then at the end you realize, oh, He's actually, in a sense, in that same situation. Mm. You know, he is dealing with the police. He he is Al Pacino's character in Dog Day Afternoon, and he is really discussing what is it he's going to do and what he's willing to do to get away with the crime he's about to commit. Yeah, and you know something, I really love the way that they set that up. How it starts off with him having that really cool monologue, and it looks like it's just three guys having a conversation in a coffee shop only to reveal that they are, in fact, in the middle of a hostage negotiation. Yeah. And the reveal there was just really refreshing to me because it's something that I don't think you really see that often. You know, I mean, obviously there are movies with hostage negotiations and <laughs> yeah, there's, there's things been a like that. But yeah, just a couple, <laughs> maybe one or two. But just the way that they pulled off that reveal and then also the huge, huge, huge effect shot whenever they try to rescue one of the hostages only for the proximity bomb to go off. I think yeah. I read that there were like 135 composite shots or something. I don't remember the exact number, but right, I think it's a 360 degree angle. Right. Yeah. To this date, I read that it is the most complicated special effects shot that Warner Brothers has ever done. And, and that wouldn't surprise me. The explosion of the hostage, it was, it was visually amazing. And, uh, and this is 2001. So at the time... Uh, you know, nothing was visual like that until, except the Matrix, right? It immediately yeah. made you think of the Matrix because the Matrix was only a couple years old at that time. But yeah, and the and not to you know bury the lead on on the hostage explosion. You know, part of what that was to me is an extension of the speech that John Travolta or Gabriel is giving at the beginning of the movie, right? He's taken over the bank. He has hostages. He's, he's, you know, giving them these vests that are basically a bunch of, you know, explosive devices with ball bearings all around them. And then yeah. giving them a shot collar like you would a dog and said, Hey, if they move too far away from me, then they'll explode. Right. And that's what we're going to do. And that's how we're going to keep you from trying to take the hostages from us. Right. He's really demonstrating that he's willing to go as far as it takes to get away with this crime. And not only is it visually entertaining and, and it actually shows his commitment right away, it, it's showing you all this and you've now learned all this about the movie, but you still have no idea who anybody is. You, you know, I, I'm not even sure if they've even said his name, Gabriel's name at this point. You, you, don't know, mm-hmm. you don't know who he is. You don't know what his motivations are. You don't know why we're at a bank. You don't know why, what he's trying to get at and do. Uh, you don't know why he's bringing Hugh Jackman along because he tells Hugh Jackman, hey, it's, you know, he tells him it's time to go to work. So, and even then, when you think about it, when you see it the first time, when he looks at family and says, hey, you ready to go to work? You think they're together. You don't even know, you don't even know at that point that, you know what, they're not. They met there and then he brought Stanley into the bank to do what happens 
much later in the movie. And so I think that it was, it was right. a great way to set everything up that you're in the middle of an action and an event has occurred, something that you're really going to remember. And then it then kicks to two days earlier, three days earlier. Exactly. And I think that it's also a terrific setup for that character, Gabriel Shears, even though you don't know his name. <laughs> Yeah, right. You don't know his name at the time. Uh, the character of Gabriel Shears, the type of character that he is, is one of my favorite types of characters in movies. And why is that? Because basically, if you were going to look at it black and white, he is basically the bad guy. But he's the kind of bad guy that thinks he's the good guy, if that makes any sense. Well, yeah, the, the, the villain is always the hero in his own story. Right. Yes. If you weren't looking at it, in black and white, though, if you you know if you were looking at it with shades of gray, um, he's the kind of character who has a very strong belief and is extremely motivated by that belief and seemingly only by that belief and will do anything, whatever it takes, even down to taking the lives of the innocent to ensure that his goals are met in yes. furtherance of his beliefs. Yes, I agree with that. And I think we should also put a pin in that before we jump that far ahead in the movie, because I think there's an argument to be made that he is the good guy, right? Okay. I think you can make that argument as well. But I think that's later on in the movie. We probably should get back to the well, wh where we are in, in the beginning that we've now flashed back. But uh, we'll uh, press but the, pause. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll press pause on that because that definitely comes up uh, much later when we, when we get back around to it. So another parts of the movie. So what we, after that opening sequence, the, the movie then, you know, flashes back and then you're introduced to who really Stanley and, and Ginger, right? It's where you first get introduced to Ginger, who's uh, Holly Berry, who, uh, while I, I think she's great in this movie, there are, you know, some questionable choices that have been made in this movie about not only who her character is, but what her character does. Right. Mm. And, and, and how they vary as ginger, you know, she also has like the two male leads. She, her character also is confusing. Like, you know, you, you don't know necessarily what is she, right? Is she merely a temptress there to convince our hero to commit a crime? Right. Is she the second in command of the crime organization? Um, is she just Gabriel's lover? Right. Or, and this comes in later, is she a DEA agent? Mm, sure. Right? And so uh, by making her uh, confusing as well, or her motivations uh, muddied as well, I think that is part of what adds to uh, not only some of the criticisms of the movie, but really I think what adds to the movie being good in that it allows a, you know, like we said, like a popcorn movie to be entertaining of where it's going to be a popcorn movie, but, you know, make me guess for five minutes, right? Yeah. Let me, let me, let me not know everything that's going on, right? And so. You know what? I, I'm a bit surprised that people would complain about the complexity of her character because this character type seems pretty much par for the course. It's nothing that we haven't seen before. In these types of movies, whether it's a spy movie or it's you know political, international intrigue, whatever the case may be, there's almost always this alluring female character with complex motives. We don't know if she's really wanting to help the hero or if she's really wanting to help the villain, which side she's on. You know, you see it a lot yes, in yes. James Bond movies. You see it a lot in Mission Impossible. So, like I said, I, I find it surprising that people would really complain about it, especially because I thought that Halle Berry pulled off this role really nicely. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not always the biggest Halle Berry fan. What? I uh, hey, I got nothing That's an against Oscar-winning actress right there, and then she no. did Catwoman. How do you not love her? 
<laughs> okay, let's forget about Catwoman. But other than right. that, she has, outside of that, she has some really good roles. No, it's nothing against her as an actress. I think that she's a very, very capable actress. Uh, it's just that uh, I'm not always enamored with her roles. For instance, I, not to, I don't want to stray too far from what we're talking about here, but I don't think that she was the right choice to play Storm in X-Men. But then again, I don't think Hugh Jackman was the right choice for Logan, so... Well, I think saying Hugh Jackman was not the right choice for Logan is fighting words, but with Storm, I see your point, but the reality was at that time with that movie, yes, we are straying off course, although, let's face it, two of the X-Men are in this movie, so we might as well discuss it for a second, Sure. in that she was the biggest star at the time, right? Yeah. They needed a name star in that, in that movie somewhere. And when you look at the actors that were in the first original X-Men at that time, I mean, Patrick Stewart was, he was still Captain Picard. He hadn't really done much outside of television yet. Right. And, um, but she was the biggest name movie star and they needed to have one. And let's face it, if you're going to have Holly Berry play one of the X-Men, Storm is the one, right? She's not going to be, you know, she's, she's not a convincing Jean Grey. There's going to be problems there. So <laughs> she had so. gray hair. Yeah, she, she did have gray hair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's, she's not going to be Jean Grey. So. Yeah, and also, um, so and getting back to the the characters of this, right? So yes. the after the opening sequence, uh, just to briefly describe the synopsis, because that's you know three days earlier, uh, they, you know you see a scene in an airport with another hacker that's that's coming in, and that's just you know we'll just skip over that as far as the discussion of why the movie's good. Um, but then you're introduced to the scene of the two where they're at. Uh, where Holly Berry goes to Stanley. Holly, Holly Berry plays Ginger. Hugh Jackman plays Stanley. Go, Ginger goes to Stanley's uh, trailer, and Stanley's on top of it, you know, uh, hitting golf balls, driving it off into the field. And so then they go there and they meet, and the, intro, and the introduction is made. And that's you know the first step of where you don't know necessarily what Ginger's motivations are, or you know, or who she is. But really, the same could be said of Stanley, right? Because you know, sure. two minutes ago, where you what you last saw Stanley is he was with who we assume is the bad guy in the movie, about mm -hmm. to hold up a bank, right? And now he's in a robe, and I'm sorry, he's in a towel. He has a towel wrapped around his waist, and he's hitting right. golf balls off the top of a trailer, right? <laughs> you know, and so you know, and so even and throughout this movie, even with his character, right, the the complications are, you know, is he an activist hacker with a heart of gold? Um, is is he a criminal hacker who wants to make one more score, or is he a caring father that's being manipulated into the situation that is more than he can handle, right? You know, so you you have with each of the main three characters, you have these confluence of possible motivations for why they're doing the things they're doing, and and the introduction of Stanley first off in the bank as as you think he's part of the crew. And then now with Ginger to come where you see that, well, okay, well, they recruited him. It then makes you wonder, well, how does he really fit into all this? And what is, you know, what is his real motivation, you know, for, for mm. what, what the things are that he's doing? And so I think that that kind of that, tri that tripod of, you know, that, that little nice tripod or trinity of, of ideas there is, is kind of the foreground for what these characters do throughout and then how, and how the movie moves forward. Regardless of what his motivations wind up being, I think we can all agree that he's a guy who really needs to clean up his house. 
<laughs> yeah, yes, he does. He lives in a trailer with all the stereotypical trappings you think of someone that lives in a trailer <laughs> in what it looks like to be the middle of an oil refinery. I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on there. So something like that. Something he, like that. But yeah, like so, cleans the pumps or something. Yes, it, it, exactly. Yeah, clean. Yeah, because Ginger says what his job is, but I I didn't even know what it was. So. Um, all right, so then I guess uh, moving on, like the other, other things that are actually uh, good about the movie, right? So I want to discuss the interview scene, um, which is, you know, to me, one of the greatest scenes in the movie, right? Like when I would tell people about this movie, I would describe this scene and this scene alone and say, go, go and watch it. So it's one just, of the memorable parts of the movie. It, it very much is. And if if you're listening to this and haven't seen, seen Swordfish, stop to stop the podcast now go watch it for this scene because i think we're just going to skip over and say this scene's great so uh but yeah <laughs> unless you want did you want to discuss that scene further uh i mean no uh, it is what it is it's okay. it's it's it, a good part of the movie it is we'll, we'll leave it at that it's it, it's, it it's intense it's the greatest job interview ever it may right. not be appropriate to discuss here. Exactly, and it's not. Uh, yes, and it, it it helps it earn the the R that the movie the the movie deserves. All right. So one of the things that they did think about uh, with with it is that that scene does lend into what I think is the second thing, right? That this movie did well. It, it created the ability to make hacking visually appealing, which is tough, okay. right? Because in real life, with hacking, it's mostly just you know watching someone type characters on a screen, right? So that is not my idea of, of visually entertaining, right? There's not, there's sure. nothing really to that, right? So the the job interview made hacking look more interesting because of you know where it added additional elements that made it where sixty seconds of a man typing became uh, suspenseful, right? It became suspenseful. You were kind of like, oh, what's going to happen on the edge of my seat and everything like that. And at the end of the day, that scene is he's, he's it's just a man typing, right? The second part of it. As far as hacking, the second main hacking sequence is the sequence when uh, oh, when uh, Stanley's making his worm work, right? So uh, this is one of those areas where you have to uh, you know suspend some belief here, right? Because we're sophisticated enough now for most of us that we understand that you know computer programs are just words. Uh, they're going to be words on a screen, and then that's it. They're not going to be visually you know what what this worm looked like. The you know the worm that he was creating. Uh, would not be visually like a yeah, hydra. You're right, a hydra. It would not be a box with different pieces that connect to it. And then you hit a button that says, does this work? And then the box falls apart if it doesn't. And then it stays together if it does, right? So so they were able to come up with an interesting way to make it where um, it looks visually, what he's doing looks visually appealing. Also, I think uh, Hugh Jackman did a great job of, of selling the idea of someone who is, you know, he looks like someone who just got through drinking 10 Red Bulls. <laughs> and then he, um, you know, and he's he's playing his playing some electronic music and singing. And being a programmer myself, I've had many a nights where I've you know had a, you know pumped myself full of caffeine, threw, threw on some electronic music, and, and went to work. Right. So he's doing he's doing that. He's you know he's he's getting up, he's getting down, he's dancing around, he's singing with the songs and everything. I thought he's typing to you know typing almost to the beat in some parts of it. And so the movie then communicates out, hey, this is what he does, right? And that's mm -hmm. what he does. And you need to communicate that this is his value to uh, the crime, right? To, to what they're really trying to pull off, which we'll discuss in a second what the crime actually is. But this is his contribution. He's going to make a worm uh, that goes in our hydro that can, that can go in and get information and hack into accounts that they want. So he, but 
that that the way he does it and that the time it takes to do it to give that some type of screen time and make it entertaining to me was one of the things this movie did a really good job of. Cause I've seen several movies with people that are hacking computers and most of the time that part is boring. Oh yeah. Right? You know, sure. Most of the time you're kind of like, yeah, I just want to just skip over them. Just, just how about this? They put their fingers on the keyboard and then you just cut to and done. Right. But this made it where it was like, Hey, I'm actually kind of with it for a bit. It wasn't too long, but it did allow you to then see, okay, well, here's his real value. He's not just, you know, a pretty face or anything like that because he's not muscle. He's not the brains. He's basically the hacker that's going to soon go and do it. And so to, to, to demonstrate that visually in a way that is entertaining in a movie, I, I think that that to me is one of the things that this movie deserves credit for that they did a really good mm. job of. It is very aesthetically pleasing. Other thing I think we should then discuss with that is about how. Maybe we should just take a step back to say, well, what is the actual plan, right? That uh, Gabriel, okay, yeah. Gabriel setting in motion, right? Which actually tells us what the title means. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So do you want to uh, go through what the actual plan is? What are they trying to do? So in the movie, John Travolta, Gabriel sits down with Stanley, played by Hugh Jackman, and he tells him what they're doing. And it seems that back in 1986... The DEA had a dummy corporation, operation codenamed Swordfish, and it was basically a slush fund of some sort that took in so much money. Um, and I think it's they said it generated about $400 million, which they just let sit around. And so the DEA shut down the dummy corporation, and that $400 million sat there for 15 years, compounding interest, and has now reached a total of nine and a half billion. Cha-ching. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. So Gabriel, who is, we find out, is the head of some kind of counter-terrorist organization that was originally initiated by J. Edgar Hoover called Black Cell, makes this plan to steal this $9.5 billion to help finance their war against terror before there was... Bush's war on terror. But just before. Just before. It was, they were early adopters. Yeah. So that's it in a nutshell. Yes. And that is also part of the interesting combination of how you would feel about Gabriel Shear. Right. When put in this context, it is kind of like, so wait, he is, his actual job is to protect us from terrorists and to us being United, United States citizens uh, from terrorists. And that his job is that if a terrorist were to bomb, you know, like if they, if they bomb a house, then we'll go, you know, blow up a school or we'll, you know, you know, his, his thing was to create retribution for those terrorists, like, you know, to punish them in some way, if they did anything to get out of line to protect uh, the American way of life, which is. Something that, you know, there's, there's a lot of gray there, right? A lot of things you mm -hmm. can agree with and disagree with, right? But then it becomes a thing of where it's like, well, he's not now, even though he's really kind of portrayed throughout this movie as the bad guy or the protagonist, his motivation isn't selfish, right? Sure. He, he may enjoy his work and just because you enjoy your work doesn't make you evil, Right. But it's not that he's saying, I want to get this money for my own personal gain to, you know, live in a beach in Tahiti collecting 4% because he bought stock in Volvo, you know, so from, from my heart. <laughs> so, so that, you know, they bought stock in Volvo, you know, collecting, uh, who was it? Buy stock in Volvo collecting 4%. Um, but, you know, <laughs> so he's not doing that. Right. So that, but he's doing it to then fund um, his determination to punish other people that he, in his worldview, 
are, are worse and that he views himself as a patriot. And so that's one of those things of where it's, it's that gray area where it's like, okay, well, is he or isn't he, right? You know, if a country attacks the United States and then we go to war, that's one thing that everyone's kind of like, okay, that's just normal, right? But then if someone attacks part of the United States and then he delivers some retribution, is he our representative in that, you know, as, as our representative of the punishment or is he a rogue person that's kind of off on his own doing something we don't like, right? So it, it, it creates a grayness that I think makes the movie a bit more interesting where, you know, you, you, you find you disagree with him about what he's doing, but not a hundred percent. Well, I think it comes down to the fact that, you know, the organization itself is a clandestine one. It's not one it that is. people know about. Right. It was secretly created according to the movie, but it's, I doubt it's real <laughs> wait this wasn't a documentary <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean but uh it was created in the movie supposedly by j edgar hoover who if if you don't know was the founder and director of the fbi for a very very long time <laughs> and it was a secret organization that's what clandestine means okay. it was a secret organization whose aim was, like you said, to basically get back at whatever nation had the cojones to come after mighty America. USA. Right. <laughs> and I, I have, see, this is one of the reasons why I really like this type of character is because I hate clandestine government organizations. <laughs> well, there's there's a lot of movie with those. Exactly. <laughs> have clandestine government organizations. Yeah. So there's a yeah. So then is did that make you hate the character of Gabriel Shear or the way this was presented? Did it make you start to rethink that position? I I mean it's. I'm always going to be biased and not like these characters, but I, you know, it's kind of like what you said. It's re it's a very gray area because what he's doing is acting and supposedly in the interest of our country of the United States It's for me, it's the kind of character you love to hate. You know okay. what I mean? Okay. So I hate this character and I love to hate this kind of character. But like you said, if I was going to be honest and try to be unbiased, it is kind of a gray area. I mean, he does only have intentions of striking if first struck. You know what I mean? Yes. Right, right. He yeah. talks about how if any terrorists come and strike against us, then they're not going to know what hit them, basically. And so, I mean, it, it, it's really tough. For me, it's really tough. I, I get what you're saying with that, and I think that it's tough when you start to objectively uh, categorize them. But I think that for me, I agree so much with the critique that Gabriel gives at the beginning of this movie. I found that I loved Gabriel because he clearly is willing to do whatever it takes, right? Mm -hmm. That in order to stop Gabriel, you have to be better than him. Right. One of the things that I hate about most, uh, uh, most, the one of the things I hate about a lot of movies is, you know, a, a good action movie or just any time we have a real protagonist antagonist situation, which is most movies, but is that the bad guy loses more than he is beaten. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the, the bad guy will do a thing that makes no sense. 
right? You, you know, and then that, and that by doing that thing that makes no sense, that then creates the environment of where he then ultimately loses, right? The, uh, you know, regularly you have like the trope of uh, the bad guy is searching, the bad guy's committed a crime, he is searching for the witness of that said crime, that the only one that could tie him to it, he captures the witness, and then for some reason that is inexplicable, does not kill the witness, right? Hangs on to him, hence motivating our hero to save the witness and and stop the bad guy, where if, if he just kills the witness and moves on, he can disappear into the sunset victorious, right? So that's a trope that you see very common in many movies. And in this situation, in this movie, Gabriel's very much like, no, I'm going to go the full distance, right? I, I will blow up the hostages if they get straight too far. I will do whatever it takes that, to succeed because I want to preserve the American way of life. And I think mm -hmm. that that actually is a, is, a, is a good segue to discuss the one of the other things that, that is good about the movie, and that's the bus scene. Right. Okay. So jumping to, you know, we're going to jump back to now that, you know, Stanley's created the worm. They're now at the bank. The, the Gabriel has delivered his monologue, which is brilliant. And then the, the hostage is blown up. At this point, Gabriel is consistently asking for a plane on a runway. And what the, he then does is he has a bus at the bank where he loads up all the hostages. They then, you know, hack into the system to get their money. And he's loading up the hostages to then get away. Right. And so the scene with the bus is, is then that they, they all hop on the bus and then they're driving off. And so the whole time they are supposed to be going to the airport to get on a plane to then go away that the police are then giving him. And instead of that, what he does to maintain his sense of misdirection is he, they pop open four corners of the roof. A helicopter comes, grabs the bus and lifts the bus in the air and they start flying the bus over the middle of LA. Right now, mm -hmm. This is another area where obviously you must suspend some disbelief because that's kind of crazy they can do it with the bus, but it works. It works in that it's like, hey, he told them he was going to do one thing and he does something else entirely different. That is smart. It makes it where the police that are obviously following the bus on the ground the whole time, which of course they are, is going to follow them to the airport. And, and then it becomes like you, if you think about that logic, you think about that first part, it's like, well, you put yourself in a box, right? You've created a scenario where I'm on a bus. I can have a hundred cops following me. I go to an airport. I'm supposed to get all the hostages off the bus onto a plane that then flies off in the air that is completely controlled by the police. Well, that's stupid. So let me take the bus and put it in the air. And by putting it in the air, I can take a route that the police can't follow quite as easily. I can get a bit of a head start, a bit of a lead from them away from them to then try to really escape and get away with, with the crime. And the, the, uh, the visual of the bus, which is great, right? It has it's, it, the best. The oh, bus yeah. is misdirection, which is set up throughout the whole movie, and, and and then the visual where it's like you know it's you know you have a bus flying over uh, the middle of uh, the middle of Los Angeles, right? And there's you know some twists and turns. Sometimes with the helicopter can't get high enough, the bus has some wires cut. Some people start you know you do the the basic trope of people starting to fall out the back of the bus, right? But it, it's it's an all around great sequence and a great scene, and it allows the movie to continue keeping you guessing because at that moment you don't think that that's what's going to happen you think that you're you're going to go down the normal comfortable path that you're used to of oh, okay well they're going to try to go to the airport they're going to get stopped there and killed and we're going to move on and be happily ever after right but with the bus going in the air and flying into the top of a building you, you've now gone in an entirely different direction and you've made uh, not only the 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 characters more interesting but the story maintains some momentum mm. Yeah. And, you know, I think it would have been extremely exciting when it first came out because it's something that hadn't really been seen before. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I, th I think the biggest bus scene 
that I can think of would have been speed. And this well, is that's exact- the biggest bus scene ever. Right. right? So that's, <laughs> that's the high this- bar. <laughs> and so, you know, you think, oh, a bus. Okay, well, you know, and then all of a sudden it's picked up by a helicopter and then it crashes into a building. And it, yeah. yeah, this was a crazy, crazy action sequence. And I, you really have to hand it to the stunt team and the VFX department. Well, they did do this practically. That's what I was trying to say. Because it was mostly practical effects. Yeah. You got to hand it to the stunt team and the VFX department, even though this was mostly a practical sequence. But it was just so well done and so new and so fresh. And even seeing it 20 years down the road, it was really exciting to watch. Because even 20 years down the road, I've not seen anything quite like this. I mean, it was really interesting to go from a bus on the road to a bus being picked up by a helicopter being flown in the air to landing the bus very sloppily, I might add, on top of a building. And then them getting into another black helicopter and then finally Stanley shoots it down with a rocket launcher or a grenade launcher or whatever it was. Just a, a very intense and exciting action sequence. Yes, and also part of that was that it showed how Gabriel wasn't completely evil, right? Because, for example, one of the things they did is when they had all the hostages connected to the shock collar, which meant that if the triggering device went too far away from them, then mm-hmm. they would explode. Well, he has the options of when at this point you believe he's getting into the black helicopter to then fly away, right? And so he has the option of just doing that, right? Forget the hostages, just go. When they fly away, the hostages will blow up and that creates another diversion for them. But they deactivate all of the shot callers, right? They actually take a second to do that before they escape because they're like, our intent was only to achieve our goals. We're not just monsters killing indiscriminately, right? We we kill mm-hmm. only with a purpose. You know, that's kind of how they're killing. They're only killing with a purpose, but they didn't do it indiscriminately. And so then that to me adds to not only, I mean, yes, it, it's the ending part of a great scene of where the movie really goes in a direction different than you expect. But also it shows that demonstration of humanity makes it where it's like, you know, he's, you know, it, it's one of the things of where you're like, well, is Gabriel evil or is he just misunderstood? Well, I don't want to open up another can of worms. But one thing I'm going to say is... No, open the can of worms. Okay, I'm going to open this can of worms. Is he really good if he is willing to kill the innocent to achieve his ends? Because I would ask, if you're willing to take a life to save others, you know, because I think he poses the question, would you take an innocent life to save hundreds or thousands of others? Right, to save our save the American way of life. How many, how many lives? One life, a hundred right. lives, ten lives? Yes. So if you're going to take a life, why would you take someone else's life? Why wouldn't you take your own, sacrifice yourself? Well, in this case, that wouldn't give him, you know, maintain his goal. If he dies, then he's not able to then continue to move on to then... Uh, and trust no. the plan to someone else. Well, well, the, the things is there someone else? It's He's a still clandestine. Got it's a clandestine agency. That means there's not a lot of backup, right? You, you know, so th- so to me is it is very much like he has to. His character's motivation is going to be very much to move forward and go on, right? But he, and while he is fine taking life, he is not doing it indiscriminately or without reason. Because and even if you circle Fair back enough. around. 
you need to circle back around to the hostage that dies at the beginning, which is, you know, an amazing scene. Right. Gabriel doesn't kill her. Gabriel tells them, this is what will happen if you take her from us. And right. they are not, or the police are not organized enough to communicate that out to tell the cops, leave her back. Right. Even when she is trying to get back, they're pulling her against her own will out and everything and do that. And those ramifications of that, it's like Gabriel just set up the situation and said, if you do this, this is what will happen. But he didn't actually kill that person. Now, don't get me wrong. Gabriel killed a lot of other people in this movie, but he didn't actually kill her. Fair enough. So, so there any other uh, sequences that uh, pop in your mind about things? I think those main ones I want to touch on. Is there anything else that you, that pops in your mind you want to discuss that are about the movie, about what's actually good about it? Yeah. You know what? Um, there is one other scene that I do want to talk about just because I think it's crazy. <laughs> I don't, I, I can't say whether it's good or bad, but I want to hear what you think about this scene. So there, there's a part where Stanley picks up his daughter and takes her home. And then after his daughter gets out of the car and goes in the house, he realizes that Don Cheadle, who is uh, the FBI agent that arrested him, is following him. And he sees, you know, these FBI agents in the car behind him and he ends up running. I thought that was an interesting sequence, particularly the sequence where he gets to the edge of a cliff, realizes he's trapped and proceeds to jump off of said cliff and roll down the little, the very steep, I don't know what you'd call it, an embankment or whatever. No, it's a, it's a cliff. It's, it, it's, it's, a, I mean, it's, what is that? Probably like a 70 degree angle cliff, but it's a cliff. So, uh, I mean, that was pretty crazy. I mean, I saw that I'm watching this and all I can think of is, oh, wow, my brain would hurt so much if I survived <laughs> that. Yes, but I, I think that of the scene, I think that is one of the things on uh, that is interesting about the movie in that it's a different scene as far as is doing that. Because a lot of times in that scenario, you know, you go one of two ways. The person running would stop and realize, okay, that's just crazy. I'm not going down there. Uh, the mm -hmm. people chasing them wouldn't go down after him as well, right? Because that was, that was the other part. There's a... Normally, a lot of times the person being chased stops, but then in this case, when they go, in most movies, the people chasing them don't also follow them down. And, right. and this movie then said, nope, we're going to have it where not only does, does Stanley go to try to try to get away, but then uh, uh, Don Cheadle's character, whose name is escaping me right now, is also going to chase him down down the, down the cliff, right? So it, it creates that, right? And by doing that, it makes it where a, a, a really a nondescript foot chase you know, becomes a bit more interesting because you've introduced this element of danger effectively in it by going down the, down the cliff. So, uh, yeah, no, I, it is another sequence of where I think that it's another sequence in this movie and kind of a little gem of something where it's like, hey, this movie is doing a lot of the things. It's taking a lot of the tropes you've seen in other movies and doing some of those tropes, really, but in a different way. Right, sure. just something that's a little bit entertaining. <laughs> it, I liked it. And another example of why the stunt team in this movie needs to be praised. Uh, yes, yes. No, that was that was definitely a lot of stuntmen doing that. So, that, yeah, that was... And that, was uh, that wasn't was no crazy. Hugh Jackman yeah. doing yeah, that. Right, exactly. Yeah, they, this was, they, weren't, they didn't CGI that. Some, some stuntmen ran down that hill. And that's, yeah, that was... Or fell down that hill, depending upon which part of it you're, the sequence you're talking about. It was... Uh, yeah. Uh, one last thing that I think that we do need to address is our twist ending. Absolutely. Okay, so we talked about the bus sequence, and they land the bus on top of the building. 
Gabriel gets into another helicopter and they attempt to take off and make their getaway. But Stanley grabs one of the grenade launchers that was on the bus and shoots the helicopter with it and it explodes. And you would think everybody that was in it would be dead. And so cut to a scene where they're in the morgue and they have the body of Gabriel seemingly, and they bring in Stanley to verify the identity. And he's like, yeah, that's him. And then Stanley has a little bit of a flashback where he remembers this scene where he sees the dead body of Gabriel in the wine cellar only to come across Gabriel like two seconds later. So we know that there was like a Gabriel dummy or life model decoy or whatever you want to call it. And he realizes that this has to be the fake Gabriel. And I think what really cemented that was the fact that he Stanley is told that they have found no record of a DEA agent named Ginger Knowles. And so he starts to piece these pieces of information together. And But the Gabriel was, that was the real Gabriel Shear. The, the body, the body, the dead body in the cellar and the dead body that you see at the end, that's Gabriel Shear. John Travolta's character isn't actually Gabriel Shear. He's someone else and that to me was part of the brilliance of it is that he's you know what he says when he talks to the senator how he says he's changed identity so much he doesn't even know his own name anymore he's not gabriel right. shear right so wow. he, he he became surgically altered to look like gabriel shear but the dead body was that was gabriel shear ladies and gentlemen if you are listening to this podcast you have now heard me make the biggest ass of myself that i have ever made <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not, uh, not not at all. Not at all. Why do you? I feel so dumb, man. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I see. I watched that, and I thought, I honest, honestly, I thought that was like some kind of dummy or something. And he planted that in the helicopter or something, or got away from the helicopter. And yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I well, to be fair, I had the benefit of having seen this movie. I don't think ten times is an exaggeration. So having seen it that many times, yeah, but they, yeah, but that's that's who that was. Is that he was the actual game? I am a dummy, and, and that was the part of the genius of the plan, right? Because he changes himself so much to look like whoever it is that they've uh, then captured and killed, which is you know, and it's interesting at the end where he looks like Bill Clinton with the with the gray hair and skin shaving. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like. You know, it's like his character from uh, Primary Colors. Is that the the movie where he was basically playing Bill Clinton, but wasn't Bill Clinton? So he looks like that at the end, where John Travolta looks like that at the end. But yeah, it's a. Uh, um, but yeah, no, it was it, to me it was part of the other genius and outsmarting of everything of it, and and also to potentially, while it may not have been intentional, it might have been part of the nod of where Gabriel Shear wanted him to know, uh, wanted Stanley to know what would happen, what had happened. Because had Stanley not seen that body earlier in the movie, I, I don't think he would have pieced it together. Mm-hmm. But once he saw it, once, because he saw the, the corpse earlier, when he saw it at the end, it then triggered that reaction to him. We started to understand, you know, it gave his flashback of where he then re-remembered he saw some people walking down the stairs. Okay. So the twist ending then. I think it's safe to assume works for you. It does, um, especially given that they went with the uh, new ending, uh, with, with the ending that you see in the theatrical release, right? Where uh, the twist is not only that 
He's uh, Gabriel Shear is not in the helicopter. Well, at least John Travolta's Gabriel Shear is not in the helicopter, but gets away. Cut to scene a few minutes later. Ginger is alive and goes into a bank and withdraws all the money, right? And I think that's exactly how this movie should end, right? That the, Gabriel Shear's character was smarter than everybody else the whole way. You know, when you think about even at a high level, all the manipulation he had to do, not only to get all the setup and everything into getting to the bank and going physically there and getting the money out, right? But beyond that, not only does that, has the forethought of thinking about the helicopter to take the bus to take it to the top of the building. He has the, has the black helicopter waiting there, which you would think logically is his escape route, but it's not. What it is is it's his way to get, he's manipulated Stanley enough that he knows that he's going to see the rocket launchers in the bus and then blow the helicopter out of the sky. And then when he does, that gives him the true perfect getaway of, you know, they're not going to look for you if they think you're dead. Right? right, and that's what that's what he did. He manipulated everybody to get to that point, and that his true genius and mastermind dictates that in this movie he needs to get a, get away with the crime and get the money. Right, the, you can't have some hackney thing later on where Hugh Jackman does a thing and stops him or whatever. That's just ridiculous. Right? If you're able to put all that together, you're going to get away with it. And that to me was part of the enjoyment of the, of the movie is that the and I'm going to say it in quotes, bad guy. One. <laughs> you don't have to say it in quotes. He's the bad guy. Uh, well, is he? <laughs> I, I still think that it's, it's one of the things that you can go down the rabbit hole to argue. Is he or is he not the bad guy? But, sure thing. So what do you think the filmmaker's goals were? And uh, did they achieve them? I think that the director, Dominic Cena, was aiming to make an action movie the likes of which had not been seen up to that time. And I, I say that because uh, in some of the behind-the-scenes features and in some of the interviews that I did manage to watch, he was trying to get across his intention to do things that were fresh and things that were new and exciting. And in all honesty, though, I think that's something that any filmmaker would aspire to to do with their film <laughs> you would hope that's that's really all i have as far as filmmakers intentions and that being said i think that he and the rest of the crew did that very well yeah i, I agree i think that their goal was really to make a movie uh that will keep the audience guessing and at the same time uh make a movie that was stylish and uh fun to watch right and 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 a lot of times in movies i think you get one or the other but very rarely and this to me is that special case where you get both and even though for some people and some critics, you will find that people had a hard time with that tightrope. I think that if you definitely give this another watch and take a look at it again, even if you didn't like it the first time around, that if you see that, hey, it's a, a fun ride, but not a fun, boring ride, uh, mm -hmm. that you'll see that's a very enjoyable movie and that they really did a, achieve that goal of making uh, making a fun popcorn movie, you know, with some twists and turns where you're not going to know right off what's going on. Right. Well, I guess that brings us to our rankings and reviews. No, don't do this! So, when it came down to your flick chart ranking, how did this movie fare? Well, for me, this is... So, this is a movie that I love. And so, for me, on the flick chart, it was uh, ranked number 95 out of 400 movies, which... Uh, 
uh, meant that with Flickchart, it should be uh, of four stars. But I looked at Flickchart and said, no, that <laughs> is not a good enough rating for this movie. It is four and a half stars. And if it was on Letterboxd, it'd be four and a half stars with a like. And uh, but the, from the percentage uh, sense, it was a seventy-six percent movie, and so I think that's really about right. It's it's one of the movies that I, 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 I do I like a lot. I'm an unashamed fan of this movie. Um, <laughs> it, it it is not you know it's not the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life, but at the same time, it's really up there for me. I really enjoy the movie. I enjoy it on rewatch. Right. Uh, I think this movie has the rewatch capabilities. Really. Uh, two things that a lot of movies, it has two things in it that most movies don't have. One, when you rewatch it, it still has the same fun bubblegum popcorn op action sequences. You still get that every single time, which are always fun to watch. You know, like, you know, if you watch any Fast and Furious movie, you know that the only reason you watch it is because it's fun to see the scenes. But the <laughs> other thing it gives you is that the plot is, is uh, complicated enough. That when you watch it again, you can find that you you can find new things you didn't necessarily catch the first time around watching right. the movie the second time, right? And so it it makes it uh, preeminently rewatchable, and that's uh, one of the other reasons why I unabashedly love this movie. And how did it fare in your rank? Well, uh, this was actually my fourteen hundredth film to log on Flick Chart. Congratulations! Thanks. And it landed at spot number 499 out of 1,400, which is a 64%. Flick chart recommended a star rating of three. Uh, I went with three and a half. I was very close to giving it four, but I, I stuck with three and a half for now. But I feel like on future viewings of this movie, it could very well go up to four. Yeah, good. If I knew you were coming, I might have cleaned up a little. And uh, I guess then let's go into the final evaluation. Do you feel that this film deserves the bad rap that it gets? Hell no. Hell no. No. I mean, I th like, like we were saying at the beginning, uh, a lot of people thought that this was too convoluted. And I think that people just overthink it. I, if you, th I, I, when I was watching this movie, I saw this as kind of an amalgamation of Heat, The Matrix, and the first Mission Impossible movie. And Mission Impossible. Yeah. yeah, I think that's good. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. If you look at the first Mission Impossible, which I love, I love the, all the Mission Impossible movies, even the second one. Um, <laughs> the second was my favorite until I. <laughs> Should have just watched it once and stopped because that was the best. But if you look at that first Mission Impossible movie, you know, its plot is, I would crazy. say, is, yeah, is just as crazy as this one. And yet it's very beloved. So just the fact that people would complain about the plot here just amazes me to be perfectly honest. I, I don't get why so many people would complain. It, it's entertainment. It really is. And so, uh, if we, ha uh, hopefully we have convinced you to, uh, carve a few hours out of a Saturday afternoon sitting around and you think you want to watch something maybe you've already seen, uh, to check sort fish out again and you'll see how, how really entertaining this movie is. Right. Oh, and, uh, like, I don't know if you caught it folks, whenever, we talked about it at the beginning, but as of the date of recording this show, it is available on HBO Max. So go watch. Exactly. Already already included with your subscription, and that's the right price for anyone. <laughs>
This has been Silver Linings, part of the next real family of film podcasts on TrueStory.fm. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and that we may have even inspired you to give this movie a second chance. If you'd like to get more involved with the Next Real community, visit thenextreel.com slash membership. For just a dollar a month, you can become a one reeler and join our online community in our Discord server. And for a few dollars more a month, become a two reeler supporter and join us for show live streams as we record, early access to shows in your very own personal podcast feed, and access to the super secret member channels in Discord. Plus, you can now support with a single annual donation at either level. Thank you to everyone who's joined us and to all who are checking us out. Your support allows us to keep producing and growing the next real family of podcasts here at truestory.fm. See you in the next episode. I love the conversations that so many of our hosts have had on their shows. Steve and JJ on Trailer Rewind, Ray and Ocean on Silver Linings, even Tommy's short-lived No, No, Wait, Hear Me Out. And so many films they've discussed started out as a book, a play, or even a TV series. Well, now you can support our whole family of podcasts by using our new Originals page to buy the original source material used to inspire films covered on our shows. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these fantastic conversations. It's a wonderful way to support the show. Producing these podcasts week after week require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, try using our originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy the book, play, video game, movie, etc. upon which the movie is based. Original material for trailer rewind movies like If Beale Street Could Talk, The Goldfinch, Aniara, or The Two Faces of January. Or Silver Linings movies like Repo Men, which was based on the repossession Mambo. Plus, by using those links to buy books, Amazon and Apple show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals. It's a fantastic way to support the show and find a great book to read. That's right. Head over to thenextreel.com slash originals to find your next read and get started today. Get started today.